You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Mark, Caitlin, Towner, Patrick, a very, very exciting podcast. We've done hundreds of these. But this one is special because we get to welcome our new colleague and friend, former Congressman Rodney Davis from Illinois to our team. Uh, Rodney, welcome. Okay. Rodney, Rodney joined us last week following the um, uh, the beginning of the, the sort of beginning of the new Congress, <laughs> which we'll talk about. Um, but Rodney, we are beyond thrilled to have you on our team and look forward to doing great things together and and continuing to build the great business that we built and uh, to doing all sorts of interesting client work with you. So, so welcome. Well, thanks, Howard. And thanks to everybody on the podcast. I'm, I'm a little concerned right now. If you guys have done hundreds of these and I'm only asked to do this one and never asked again, I'm going to know how, how well I did pretty quickly, right? Well, the bigger question is what's the over under on Rodney quitting after we subject him to one of these podcasts? <laughs> it's it's going to uh, be high. No, knowing this crew already, I got the over and I usually don't take the over on anything. Tyler knows <laughs> that. I, I took the under on his marriage and I lost. <laughs> <laughs> Rodney, why don't you talk a bit uh, just before we get into the substance of the day uh, about your, your time in Congress, your background and, um, what you want to do here? Well, I'm excited to be a part of the team. Uh, I, I'm glad to come on a couple of a week and a half ago now, I think, and be able to spend some time getting to know the folks in Cozen. And, and really, I'm looking forward to going around to all the offices and, and meeting such uh, you know such a, a good stable of people in the public strategies division, but also the attorneys that make up the great law firm that it is. Um, it's a comfort factor, Howard. Uh, when I lost the primary that was unexpected in May. I didn't know what I wanted to do next. And I began that long process of figuring out how a bipartisan member of Congress who spent 10 years trying to legislate in Washington, you know, what could be the next career step. And in the end, I got a chance to see that there's a lot of opportunity if you want to work hard and you want to start a career and you want to stay in public policy, you can do that. And I got a, I, I was blessed. I got a chance to choose between a lot of great policy shops of where I wanted to go. And um, thankfully, I met a lot more people than Counter French, and I was really <laughs> excited to come to Cozen O'Connor. Yeah, maybe we should figure out the over-under on how many podcasts left until I quit, if Rodney's going to do that. <laughs> Rodney, I, I, I want to begin your long and, uh, and uh, impressive tenure on the podcast with a shout-out to your wife. Share with us what your wife had to say about your decision process. Well, again, I was blessed with a six-month off-ramp and a lot of interest from a lot of great firms in, in and around Washington. And my wife was around for the, the endless Zoom calls that, that working to uh, possibly join a firm entailed. And she always told me when we were kind of going through our decision-making process of which offer to take, she said, I want to tell you every single time I witnessed you get off a call or a Zoom with the folks from Cozen, you were smiling, you were laughing, you seemed like you just fit there. And my wife was a big reason that I decided to uh, take a chance on a firm that took a chance on a guy like Towner and came um, <laughs> here. As you guys will find out on this podcast, I've known Towner for for. Yeah. Almost 20 plus years. Yeah. Well, great friend, you, great guy, but he's going to take the wrath of me for a long time. He's going to be so nice to me. We thank, we, we thank your wife for her wisdom, for her, her sage counsel, and tell her she can now join the spouse club of the podcasters and never ever have to listen. We have that. Uh, <laughs> We have a tradition of spouses somehow not finding the 40 minutes to ever listen to a podcast. Well, Felicia and Sue Ellen uh, are not avid listeners. I call <laughs> them our least avid listeners, Rodney. So, My wife will not need any initiation. She was my 
least avid listener my 10 years in Congress. <laughs> Listening to your wife about coming to Cozen, though, is a good decision. Towner and I did the same thing. The, the only difference was our wives also caveat it with, if you don't go to Cozen and you stay where you're at and quit compl- and keep complaining the way you are, I'm going to just leave you. So <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> so good. Well, we are thrilled. And uh, let's get into... Crazy, um, crazy times in Washington. So we spent, I think we talked last Friday and we didn't yet have the light at the end of the tunnel on the speaker's battle, uh, the speaker's vote. I think we we had a sense of where it was heading, Towner, but, yeah. you know, it, it settled out, obviously, with Speaker McCarthy taking the gavel. And I, I guess... Is, is that now, Towner, is it ancient history or is the House in disarray coming out of the, the speaker battle? Uh, I wouldn't say it's 100 percent either way, to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, it's there is certainly a little bit of disarray. I mean, even at the the conference meeting that the Republicans had this week, uh, you know, members, uh, moderate Republicans and sort of middle of the road Republicans were still demanding, you know, to see what what everybody believes is this mythical three page document that's out there uh, that lists all the additional concessions that were made to Freedom Caucus members. So uh, there's a lot of folks in the conference that want to know what were the promises in that last flurry of meetings that that brought everybody across the line last Friday night at at midnight, one o'clock in the morning uh, to vote present. And so there is disarray from that standpoint. But from the legislating aspect uh, and from the organizational aspect, I think Republicans actually had a really good week this week. Uh, they, They were able, the steering committee was able to meet. They named all the committee chairs. Subcommittees have been starting to designate their, uh, or full chairmen have been starting to designate their subcommittee chairs. Um, the organization of the House is happening. And meanwhile, Republicans cleared through their entire sort of January, uh, you know, first tranche agenda this week, even picking up considerably large bipartisan votes on two China related bills, one to prohibit the sale of oil out of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to China and the other to set up this new China Competitiveness Committee, the select committee that will be set up. Uh, passed with 361 votes. Two-thirds of the Democratic conference voted for it, uh, and they're actually looking forward to participating. So some of these things are are happening that are bringing us back to a sense of normalcy. Yeah, yeah. so that was great, Towner. Now let's actually go to the person who really knows the answer to the question. Uh, Rodney, chime in. I got to tell you, Towner is actually right for once. I'm shocked. <laughs> I'm completely amazed. Oh, oh Towner. Counter hit the nail on the head. Look, the Republicans who supported Kevin McCarthy, all 15 ballots, all 200 plus of them, they're excited to get to work. And I've never seen them more energized. I mean, these were the group that I was a part of. Everyone knows I'm a big fan of Kevin McCarthy. Kevin's one of my good friends. Kevin is somebody who earned the right to be Speaker of the House, who earned the right to lead this conference. And remember, he had the support of over 200 Republicans every single step of the way. And now when you look ahead, there's always going to be this action. The reporters are going to say, where is this secret document? What conspiracy that Republicans are putting forth now exists? And and how how did Kevin sell out the House? Really, when you look at the details, as Tyler said, the rules that we're operating under now in a Republican-led House aren't much different than the rules that Tyler operated under when he was a deputy staff director of the Rules Committee for Pete Sessions the last time. That we were in the majority. And if you, if you want to see things that are given away, I mean, people can find conspiracies in anything. Like, should Andrew Clyde be on appropriations? Who knows? Was that a promise? I doubt it. But in the end, because of redistricting, because you have such a large turnover in Congress, we had a new majority. It allows us more committee positions. Some of these guys would have gotten the committee appointments without the so-called agreement to do so. So in the end, I don't think Kevin gave away a lot because what I watched is I watched those who were opposed to him peel off for demands that were already kind of not there. And and in the end, he won. And I think he's going to be a stronger speaker for it. And the House being more open is not a bad thing. That actually can foster more bipartisanship. Remember, lastly, I want to tell you, 
the rules that the house have operate the house has operated under the last four years have been the most closed rules process I was ever a part of. And that was Nancy Pelosi's rules package. It didn't foster bipartisanship. And what didn't we see over the last four years? We didn't see bipartisanship. So in the end, could be better for governing governing Republicans and Democrats. Yeah, but the difference I would argue is that you didn't need bipartisanship as much when you had unified control of government the last two years and Democrats were trying to pass their agenda. So it, it probably served her purpose. Now you have divided government. You know, I think Republicans, Rodney, would would agree that it's going to be tough to get a lot of their agenda passed through the House and the Democratic Senate and signed into law by a Democratic president. Right. So bipartisanship is really going to be the only way that you can get any part of the agenda passed and signed into law. Right. Well, let's take a step back. You mentioned, you know, there was undivided government the last two years, but there was divided government the two years before that. And it was pretty close. It was a pretty closed rules process that right. Pelosi put in place when President Trump was in his last two years of office. That was 18 to 18 to 20, the last yeah, two years. Yeah, 19 to 21 officially. But but so that rules process, the closing of that rules process was something that Nancy Pelosi already did. Maybe it was because of her experience being speaker before that she just ripped the bandaid off and said, this is how we're going to operate. But yeah. in the end, you, you are correct. There was a closed process. But. But when you look at the last two years and you compare it with unified government, and now we go into divided government, who in the world really thinks major issues are going to be addressed in divided government anyway? So having an open rules process allows for more opportunities to see bipartisan success. Who who are the people in today's House who are going to work towards that bipartisanship. It's all about the people. The rules are the framework that's important. I hear what you're saying about the opportunity for bipartisanship with a more transparent rules package. But but who are the human beings who are willing to do what you did throughout your career, reach across the aisle and try to get something done? Well, some of my best friends in Congress are those that are, are considered the governing Republicans. David Joyce, Dave was the first guy I met when I got to Congress. I got out of the car after getting dropped off at our orientation hotel. And there's some guy standing on the street corner and sticks his hand out and says, hi, I'm Dave. I'm like, hi, I'm Rodney. I mean, like going to college the first time you're moving into your door. And he's like, well, what are you doing tonight? I'm like, well, I probably the same thing you're doing. Um, he's like, well, I'll wait for you. Go drop your stuff. Well, he was still there when I came back down. And I took a while to hang my clothes up. I'm like, this guy's going to be my friend. We're best buddies still to this day. Dave Joyce is a leader of those governing Republicans in the Republican governance group. Uh, you've got the Problem Solvers Caucus, too. Think back when when we were only able to see the Democrats have a, a four-seat majority in the last Congress. I thought that the Problem Solvers Caucus would be the power source. So that they could go out, negotiate, some, put some pressure on leadership of both parties to move legislating to the middle. Unfortunately, the best success they had was right at the beginning of 2019 when they, they forced Nancy Pelosi to accept, uh, uh, to accept a rules change. That if you had 290 co-sponsors, you got a bill on the floor, you had a, a markup or a hearing in, in the committee. That was the last success they had. Look back at the last two years. There was not one Democrat who's supposedly a problem solver that ever bucked their leadership team on a major piece of legislation. I hope that changes with Republicans in charge. And if so, it allows Brian Fitzpatrick to be able to take his his organization and, and make it that powerhouse it should be. And Brian should be able to do that. He's another leader that likes to govern. You got folks like David Valadeo, who are leaders that are quiet leaders that are, that are operating behind the scenes to try and move legislation to what would be considered. However, don't put too much pressure on a lot of those folks and add in Don Bacon, add in Dusty Johnson. These are the folks on the Republican side that can do that. Democrat-wise, Jimmy Panetta, my best friend on the Democrat side of the aisle, one of my best friends in Congress. He's somebody who knows how to get things done. Josh Kottenheimer, too. Uh, these guys should be willing to move and and trust me, there's one thing I'm going to find out about my Democratic colleagues or former Democratic colleagues. 
who were the problem solvers who didn't buck their leadership, they're going to be the loudest voices asking the Republicans to do so now. Exactly <laughs> uh, right. You know, Mark, what's... Thing, go ahead, Howard, If I could interject one yeah. other thing. Look, we've seen a weird collaboration between Freedom Caucus members who are fiercely <clears throat> libertarian and progressive members on a lot of, uh, you know, open governance issues. I'm curious to see if if the, the far right and the far left get together a little bit. They're starting to... To cross over. It's almost like they're becoming a circle where they're meeting uh, at some point on a lot of major issues, especially as it relates to foreign policy, not things I, per- I particularly agree with. Um, but uh, I'd be curious to see if we see some collaborations, even on Ugh, the left and far that, right. That's uplifting, Towner. <laughs> yeah, but it's, mean, a good, hey, it's a good point. And Ronnie bringing up the problem solvers is a great article today in Politico featuring. Great article. I mean, yeah, I just think the point on bipartisanship is that it has a better chance in divided government because that's the only way there's going to be any legislating. I mean, the the first two years of the Biden administration, unified Democratic government, first two years of the Trump administration, unified Republican government, go back to the first two years of the Obama administration. Even if you have people who are well-intentioned, the Joe Manchins of the world, the the moderates in the House that, that want bipartisanship, that when you have unified government of your party, there is just a tremendous amount of pressure to get as much done as you possibly can. And I don't agree with it on either side because I think it causes a lot of bad public policy decisions. It's just trying to like, let's get everything we can possibly get done done as fast as possible. And then we'll deal with the, you know, we'll deal with the repercussions later. But I'm hopeful to your point, Congressman, that a more open process divided government that some of these really talented moderate voices are gonna have a, a moment. More work for us too. Yeah. <laughs> More opportunity for our clients. Caitlin, the um, jump in here because, you know, when I was in the executive branch, we occasionally got involved in a piece of legislation that was relevant to what we did. But most of the time, our interactions with Congress were from an oversight perspective. And everybody talks all day long about Congress as a legislative body. They forget often about the power of Congress as an oversight body. Talk about what you're hearing as far as the oversight agenda. And there have already already been some moves made. What what are you what are you hearing in that regard? Well from an oversight standpoint, we know that you know the origins of COVID is something that that um the oversight committee is going to be focused on and and also taking a look at DOJ and what's been happening with sort of what Republicans are calling the weaponization of some of our law, DOJ and law enforcement agencies. And just taking a look, look, I mean, yes, it's going to be a little bit of a, um, you know, interesting uh, oversight agenda, but there are opportunities for for Democrats too, to take a look at some of these issues and, um, you know, whether it's the origins of COVID or China competitiveness or, um, some of these other issue areas and work together on certain things. You know, I mean, China is bipartisan. Of course, yes, and that was good to see that several, dem- many Democrats voted in support. Um, and I believe Mike Gallagher is going to be leading that select uh, subcommittee or, or committee, and I think it's going to be. We're going to see some interesting things out of there. And Mark, what's the view? How are you looking at this? From the perspective of the administration and the the Democrats in Congress, Hakeem Jeffries, what how are you what are you hearing on, on that side of the aisle? And how are how are you looking at this? Well, last week, of course, what uh, I was hearing, what Patrick was hearing was entertainment because the process <laughs> of electing the speaker was, if nothing else, entertaining. And we got a week off. We got a week off to eat popcorn and, and watch the show. But I think there is uh, a, a measure of relief that it came to rest as predicted. Kevin McCarthy may not be every Democrat's dream speaker, but he is at least a known professional. And there's optimism that he will bring the caucus and the House under control. There's also, though, Howard, some trepidation about the big issues, debt ceiling being the the center, the bullseye of of the target. And, And 
Democrats, in a perverse way, after the fun of last week, Democrats are rooting for McCarthy to figure this thing out and to figure out how we're going to be able to move forward because there is work to be done. And I think the administration and the Senate and, and the caucus in the House all have fingers crossed that we're going to be able to actually legislate. Yeah, Rodney, if you're a member, rank and file Republican sitting in the House right now, how do you look at the landscape? I mean, you've got obviously Biden for two, at least two more years, a Democratic Senate, the power of the House, but only one chamber. How do you how do you think about how do you think about your agenda in the world when you're when given what the landscape looks like? Well, first off, if you're a new member, you're still trying to actually get acclimated. You're not thinking any any overarching issues of how Congress is going to operate other than where am I going? What am I doing? But we have a lot of members that are back that can think about what does Congress look like? And, and Caitlin hit the nail on the head earlier. It's oversight, oversight, oversight if you're on the Republican side. And we're not expecting, no one there is expecting uh, major bipartisan agreements like the CARES Act or others that are going to pop through this divided government. And I know the oversight agenda is going to be uh, is going to be the priority of Republicans because before I left, I was asked to help plan it. And Towner mentioned the phenomenon of the Freedom Caucus, our far right, more conservative, sometimes libertarian members when it's convenient for them to be libertarian, um, and, and teaming up with the progressives and progressives. Well, what's what's the common theme between those two? small groups of people. I wouldn't even call them the organizations. Because remember, most of the Freedom Caucus was for Kevin McCarthy, all 15 ballots, a, a, a majority of the Freedom Caucus members. But the, the thing, common thing that they have in common together is they believe in the heavy hand of government. And you're going to see the Republican and Democrat performance artists that exist in Congress for clicks and fundraising dollars and entertainment value they're going to rise to the forefront in this oversight environment, and it's going to continue to make Congress look like a circus. It's very, it's, it's, it's very important for Speaker McCarthy and Leader Jeffries to begin to have some small wins that can begin to, to overshadow the entertainment that you're going to see in the oversight environment. Yeah. And oh, to your question, how are the opposed to March is about how Democrats are viewing. I mean, oversight in the House is one of those things that I honestly think both sides kind of get excited about. The House Republicans are excited because they want to investigate. And the Democratic administration thinks that they're going to overplay their hand and look super partisan and crazy. And it it kind of like scratches the itch of of both parties. And, you know, it 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 fails to uh, it, it's you know, it hasn't really been seen, I guess, in recent administrations where the oversight is super politically effective. Like, I don't I don't think if you go back to the first two years of the Obama administration that there was a ton that came out, you know, before the, the 2012 reelect that really had a massive implication on on the reelection. The, the big political debate ended up being over the debt ceiling. And that's where I think Democrats are really curious how this is all going to play out, because as I think I referenced on the last podcast, the political dynamic this time is different than it's been the last two Democratic administrations. When President Clinton got creamed in the 94 midterms, he felt a tremendous political imperative to cut a balanced budget deal with the Republicans uh, because he knew that his reelection probably depended on it. When President Obama got, as he referenced, shellacked in the 2010 midterms, <laughs> McConnell recognized this was a tremendous opportunity to get concessions in order to raise the debt ceiling. And they were successful. The Republicans won that debate in 2011. Whether sequestration is a, was a good thing or a bad thing, they won the debate on tying spending constraints to raising the debt limit. This time, the Democrats didn't get creamed in the midterms. They actually lost the House majority, but not by much. They maintained the Democratic majority in the Senate when no one thought they were going to. And so how does that impact the negotiation later this year? What kind of political standing does the president feel like he has? It's going to be a different type of negotiation uh, to raise the debt limit than it, than it has been before. So that I, I would argue my prediction is that the market is going to dictate the outcome of the debt ceiling. The, the, 
the stock market's gonna and the bond market are gonna dictate the outcome because I think it's gonna be hard to get to the right place and the market's gonna react and these members are gonna be backed into a corner and they're gonna have to do the right thing. I'll tell you what's going to dictate it. I've had more people ask me for a briefing on a discharge petition uh, yeah. process over well, the course of the last two that's weeks. What I wanted, yeah, that's what I wanted to ask, Towner uh, yeah. and Rodney, of course. But between now and then, between now and September, when the really hard stuff really has to start happening, does McCarthy have... Uh, a secret understanding uh, in those three pages that he gets to be speaker for at least nine months? I mean, that's essentially what's going to happen because there's not going to be any intervening issue uh, between now and then. So he's got a he's got an on ramp to September and then and then uh, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department are going to tell him uh, what the debt ceiling breach date is. And, and that could be the end of his speakership uh, shortly thereafter, potentially. Well, that's Rodney's shaking his head, though. He doesn't believe that. <laughs> Rodney, tell us what's really going to happen. Yeah. You know, I, look, there, there's going to be a lot of speculation about when does the motion to vacate kill Kevin McCarthy's speakership. Um, I, I put that in the same group of, of debate points that I had to debate on CNN all last week during the speaker's vote that Kevin McCarthy was going to win. Um, in the end, don't ever count him out because he's energized and supported the 200 that supported him more than they've ever been energized to stick together. And don't underestimate that impact on debt ceiling negotiations. And a lot of it's going to depend upon coverage. And, and what frustrates me is there is two standards of coverage when Republicans are in charge of, an, of, of one side of government versus when they're not. And I've been through these debt ceiling arguments, and we've always said on our side, why not leverage to get something we want on fiscal constraints? Why not? It worked with sequestration. It worked to actually make governments think about spending. Then we had Donald Trump, and no Republican, even the far right, ever cared about spending when Donald Trump was in office because Trump said this is what he wants to do. But in the end, in the end, that discharge petition process will allow those governing Republicans to do what is right and pay the bills that we've already incurred. But we can't allow the coverage of this debt ceiling debate to really rattle the marketplace. And that's what I think you're going to see when in reality, there's no way that Congress is ever going to allow America to fall on the debt. It's not going to happen. However, it's healthy for Americans to see hopefully a debate on how to actually rein in the mandatory side of the spending budget. That's understand. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. McCarthy, if they play chicken, McCarthy can let the market back the Freedom Caucus members that that want to um, hold out on the debt ceiling into a corner. So he does effectively. He doesn't have to. Yeah, yeah, and I agree with your point that the, the like from a strategic standpoint that the debt limit is a it is a natural moment to debate those things in Congress. But to Howard's point about how the market responds, I think they hear the statements of people saying, we're not going to raise the debt ceiling unless it's tied to something. And then people start to freak out and gets and get nervous that there's not going to be the votes there to raise it. When to your point, Rodney, that everyone here knows you got to do it. There's no, there's no other option. But meanwhile, Caitlin, there's all this other stuff that people forget is out there going on. Yeah. So obviously raising the debt ceiling is something that's going to need to be done this year. But Rodney, just you know, a question for you. Two other big must-pass items this year, FAA reauthorization and a farm bill. It's a farm bill year. And you, you know, no one's really better positioned to talk about these two issues than you, having been very senior on the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee and also the House Ag Committee. So I think, yes, we're talking about oversight, but can you talk a little bit about what's going to need, be needed to come to bipartisan consensus and agreement on those two must-pass items this year? You know, Kaylin, these are two examples of bills that I think you could see bipartisan agreement on. As long as the environment just doesn't continue to be this partisan poison pill that it has been. Uh, I helped write the last two farm bills. And frankly, having Republicans take over the House to create divided government is actually going to be better for the markets and for our producers because there's not going to be major changes to agriculture policy that raises the cost on the environment. 
remember, uh, if Democrats would have maintained control of the House, every agricultural title within that farm bill would have had a climate change provision put in, which would have raised the cost to all of our producers. So I think you're going to see status quo in tweaks. And, and I think that's a very good thing. And I think that makes it a bipartisan success story in this divided government. And then you look ahead to the FAA reauthorization. Look, unless Sam Graves, Chairman Graves, a very good friend of mine that I, I served under and was one of his top lieutenants over the last, over the last two terms on T&I with, um, Chairman Graves, unless he gets a waiver, is turned out after this election cycle. And there's nobody in our conference or, frankly, in Congress that's more in tune to the aviation environment than Sam Graves because he's a pilot. Sam yes. Graves will want a success in the FAA reauthorization. And I think that will lead to a much different environment on transportation infrastructure where Sam will bring in bipartisanship, which unfortunately uh, former Chairman DeFazio did not do over his two terms when I was on that committee. With him. Do you well, think there will uh, be bipartisan support to get a new computer system for the FAA? So that I was, was going to say, this is a really, really apt timing after uh, what happened this week. Yeah. You, you've only got a week, Rodney, to get all this done so we can get Jim Davis back. From I know. Time. The Davis family is depending on some bipartisanship. So that <laughs> yeah. they're stranded life. on an island right now. Those, those pictures at the Scranton airport at 6 a.m. on Wednesday morning were the saddest things I've seen Priceless. in a long time. Priceless. As, as somebody who's a very frequent flyer, anytime the phrase ground stop is uttered, it sends panic in the airport, but never for that long. And, and frankly, um, you know, I had a, I had reporters reach out to me, and, and I, I stuck up for my friend Secretary Buttigieg because he needs time. The DOT needs time to assess what actually happened, and, and is it is it technology malfunction? Is it uh, you know, is it a cyber attack? We don't know yet. But if it's just because and the FAA neglected to upgrade the next gen as fast as they should have, then that's on them. And they're going to have to come to Congress and, and tell them why the hundreds of millions, if not billions that have been spent, have not been affected yet. And there was one big winner, I think, in my view, uh, for what happened with the FAA, which was Southwest Airlines, yeah, exactly. who, who had a little <laughs> bit of the out. heat taken off saying, hey, it's not just us. We clearly yeah. uh, have a lot to do in this space to upgrade. I, I think they still were uh, the worst of all the airlines to kind of get back up and running this week, but they're they're having wow. a, rough, a rough go of it. Yeah. All right. So Mark and Patrick, last week was highly entertaining. And as you said, Mark, get the popcorn out and, and watch. And it was it was frankly a lot of fun. Was it only last week? It was, it was only, only last week. That's what I was saying. Just like a month ago. Nuts. As I texted yeah. you guys, I think six months from now, we're not even going to remember that happened. But it, it was a week ago. Um, but and it was now quite... we come we come to the you can't make this up portion. Exactly. You know exactly <laughs> where I'm going. Patrick, this... you got this one, Patrick. Oh. <laughs> Not less than a week later to get the popcorn out for the other <laughs> side. I mean, you cannot, WTF, you cannot make this up. How? Like, how does the president of the United, there is a special counsel that's been appointed to investigate the president of the United States' handling of classified information. And... I don't know. Orange is not the favorite color of this podcast, let's just say. But <laughs> but my goodness, I mean, you, Mark, you cannot make this up. Look, you, you cannot make this up. It is Brian Flaherty's worst nightmare, our, our most avid and vocal listener who has berated Howard for his both sides-ism. <laughs> And and here we are. Yeah, Howard, both, you should be having a moment. Yeah, this is directly to Brian the moment. But let's while while Tanner's <laughs> doing some obscene hand gesture there. Let let's coming your way, Brian. Be clear. <laughs> we everybody on this screen knows, based on what we know so far, we only know what we know that there is no legal equivalence between these cases. There is no moral equivalence between these cases. But there is, unfortunately, a political equivalence. And this has, unfortunately, 
complicated what is a very serious investigation in national security matter and the the timing the, the timing is such that if you presented a screenplay to Rodney's friends in Hollywood they'd reject it as unbelievable just just not credible. We can't go forward, and here we are. I think there is legal equivalence, Mark. There is legal equivalence. It was wrong when Hillary did it. It was wrong when Trump did it. It's damn wrong when Biden's doing it. There's moral equivalence here as well. I mean, look, I'll be the first to say keeping top secret files next to your locked up Corvette in your locked up garage is probably the safest place to do it if you're president of the United States. Because I'm assuming there's just one uh, detailed Secret Service person who's just standing next to that Corvette 24-7 just to make yeah, sure. Yeah, and it's Delaware, happens. like nine people live <laughs> in that state. So yeah. no one's going to, I mean. But the thing that blows my mind is the fact that they found out on November 2nd. They covered it up. They covered it up. That's where this whole oversight on weaponization of the government thing is really going to come in and be. It's crazy. Can you imagine? If that had come out on November 2nd, what would that have actually done to the elections? It actually probably would have moved the needle slightly, but maybe not a lot. But when we're talking about congressional races that were lost by fractions of a percentage, I mean, it could have made a huge difference in the balance of Congress. We could put Merrick Garland and Jim Comey on like a Mount Rushmore of <laughs> screwing the Democrats over before the election. Yeah, Merrick Garland has the worst job in the United States no of question. America. I mean, he appointed that no special. Question. You can see it on his face. This was the ultimate like, yeah, I don't really have a choice here. I got to do I th- this. I think he may soon come to work for Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies. <laughs> yeah. I mean, call. I mean, I agree with like everything everyone said. And I, Caitlin made a great point. I mean, I think if if you can if uh, if if the new Republican majority in the committee chairs, the folks who are going to be focused on oversight, are like rabid dogs ready to go, and you can focus them in on something that would actually make an impact and have a message, I would focus on this. And at Caitlin's point how the government responds to things like this, I, I think it'd be very effective politically for them to kind of shine a light on it. Um, in part, because like most of the people who work at these federal agencies, DOJ included are Democrats. So it's, it's not a, it's not a bad point for the Republicans to make that the, the part, I just think it's like, it's just so weird. Why did these guys take this stuff with them? And like, why it, it's like, what is the matter with you? Like, well, it, like it's like a serial killer, like taking stuff with. It's like, stop it. Well, Leave I don't think work there. Like, I, put it in your library. Like, what are you doing? I don't think having been in the executive branch and having handled a lot of classified information, I don't think the government does a very good job of educating. And look, this is the president. There's no excuse. Like right. your staff screwed up. It's on him. He's the principal. He yeah. bears the responsibility. But his staff should have combed through every single document to make sure that what they were taking didn't include classified information. That being said, the government does a very poor job of educating people on the inside I be- how to handle classified information and and how to treat it and where to put it. And some of this is like very practical nuts and bolts. And I just don't, I don't think the government does a good job. And that's probably, look, Donald Trump isn't going to jail over this. Joe Biden's not going over, going to jail over this. There is going to be a re-examination of the government process for handling classified information. And ultimately that's probably where this lands given Don't that they're take not anything with you. Yeah, exactly. Right. Leave be, it all there. Right. But it has right. to be a review of the white house. I mean, Rodney, I, I had a top secret clearance in Congress. Rodney, you had one as a result of being a member of Congress or else they probably wouldn't have given one to you, but you know, it's, uh, <laughs> but, um, um, but you know, we go into secure conference rooms called skips. We can review classified material. We cannot take that material out. If that material leaves that room, it is in a special top secret pouch 
that has multiple locks on it and it has to be carried by somebody who's certified to be able to do so by the federal government. It can't be opened up and you can just show a file to somebody as you're walking down the hallway. Only in the White House do apparently they just walk around with top secret folders everywhere they go within the White House and just leave them on desks and throw them in file boxes well, and things like that. Connor, it's a good point because there have people there have, people have gone to jail for mishandling yes. secret information. Yes. This is actually for both presidents, top secret information. And you're right. The, the procedures are more prescribed as far as that's concerned. And it, it, it's just malfeasance yeah. by. Well, I, think, dude, I didn't think the president's response was very effective either. And I, honestly, I don't know what you're supposed to say. And I'm sure there's a lot of like legal implications, just making sure you don't say the wrong thing. But like, again, with this president, the perception of his age and everything else to just look like I I, I didn't know. And like, I don't like it just kind of perpetuates this this idea out there that like he has no freaking clue what's going on. And that's not helpful to him, especially at a moment where like it felt like things were going pretty well. The midterms had gone well. Right. You know, the speaker race is a disaster. Like it 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 couldn't have come really at a a worse time for a fumble when you just did, you didn't need a turnover right now. And that's, Rod, it seems yeah. like what happened. Rodney, I think I talked to, I was talking to a friend of mine last night who lives in New Jersey and, and, and hit, he was saying, I'm just so disgusted by everything. Um, when I see this, like, yeah, Trump, but now Biden, like tell with all of them, you've represented constituents in Southern Illinois for a long time and, and worked with them as a staffer before that. How do you, how do you, how are your former constituents? How do they look at something like this? Well, most constituents, most people in America don't live eat and breathe politics. Like, you know, the members of the media and those involved in public policy do via social media. 98% of all Americans aren't on Twitter. So they're thinking about how are they going to go to the grocery store for grocery bills? How are they going to put gas in their car? How are they going to get kids to their sporting events? Et cetera. That's they're living life. Um, they don't they don't talk about this. It, it's just it's, it's numbing to them. Yeah. It's both sides, like they said, you know, Howard on this podcast, I think you should change your name on your Zoom to Howard Switzerland. All right. <laughs> and and oh, it'll be, you know, oh, that's good. But that's that's what makes them a great moderator. That's exactly the point I was going to make. But let me say something real quick. As somebody who just moved out of a government profession and moved out of an office, I can tell you, I have no idea why people take any documents. I took pictures and they're in bubble wrap sitting in my new office at Cozen O'Connor. There's nothing that I would ever think about taking out of my office and saying, oh, I might just store this into the garage. And we've already proven early in this podcast that my wife, Shannon, is clearly the smartest one in my family. And frankly, Probably I'm looking at all of you on this podcast. I'm going to put her above all of you too. Okay. <laughs> she brought something up this morning that I think if you have a lot of lawyers listening to this, you got to take a step back and wonder, okay, number one, who found these documents in a garage next to a Corvette? <laughs> I mean, the story they want us to believe is that somehow lawyers were just walking around the garage and found these top secret documents. Well, right. Cozen O'Connor is a pretty big law. Who is going to use billable hours against the retainer or have somebody pay billable hours just to walk around the garage? And, oh, there's some top secret documents that we just found a couple days before an election. That's the problem that President Biden and his administration has right now and how they answer these questions. Now, it was mentioned earlier, Howard, you said President Biden's not going to jail. President Trump's not going to jail for this. I will argue, without this happening to President Biden right now, President Trump would have been indicted. He would have been indicted by the Garland, by the Garden Garland Justice Department. And when you look at the difference, this is where the American people get frustrated. They see a raid of President Trump at Mar-a-Lago when he was president. He does whether you like him or not. And frankly. I have issues with him as everybody knows. But he is, as president, can declassify any document he wants. Joe Biden was vice president at the time these documents were taken. He did not have that ability to do so. And these are the questions that I think now you're going to see in the oversight environment. And I certainly hope that the special counsel of the Justice Department cooperate 
on both instances. Because you're right, Howard, the federal government needs to do a better job of figuring out how in the executive branch to address classified documents, because Towner's right. And I can't believe this, but the legislative branch, which is not that strategic, does a better job based yeah. on what Towner re relayed earlier. Yeah. But the, well, the equivalence theme thing Mark brought up is important. Like, I mean, what I think we probably all agree on is that there is now no, the, the I agree with what Rodney said, that the the idea that this is going to be President Trump's ultimate liability now is just not it's not the case. It's it's impossible. But there is a difference whether or not it matters to anyone. And frankly, I don't think it does, because I just don't think people care or take the time to care. But but Mark, you were pointing out there they're not the same thing. I mean, President Trump being down showing the Kim Jong <laughs> letter to people at Mar-a-Lago is a little different than having, you know, than having the uh, the stuff that was at the Biden Center in Delaware. They proactively turned it over. Once it was found, yeah. they took it upon themselves to turn it over to the Justice Department. It's not like it had to be pried out of their hands. So, I mean, yeah. it's not exactly the same thing, but it doesn't matter. I mean, I'm going to tell you what happened right now. What happened is know. some staffer knew that they had a problem. And when, once they raided Mar-a-Lago and started the Trump thing, somebody said to somebody with sweat pouring down their face, I, I hate to say this, but we've got some vulnerability and we have to go make sure that we're bulletproof because if it comes out that we have this and we didn't bring it forward and this other thing is going on with Trump, we're done. And that's why they got a bunch of lawyers to go in and comb through the information and, and bring it forward. Like they, they, somebody knew they had a problem. Can I ask you though, the genuine question, like why, because Ronnie, you brought up like not taking anything. I was trying to think of like why, staff or anyone would take some of the stuff and it, it's not like it can't just be like it's a trophy like i brought up the kingdom the only thing i was thinking is like did his political advisors think mm -hmm. like there are some things from his vice presidency that could be misconstrued and so if we have some documents that like it, do we need proof to show where he was on certain issues or you're like, thinking too hard point? patrick you're thinking too hard they're just mishandling the information oh well they're just that's what I think. How was right? How was right? I mean, look, when you're moving out of the White House, or in my case, moving out of a single office, they're just thinking about get this stuff done. Yeah. And get, yeah, get rid of it. Get it. Get it done. I guarantee it was somebody through sheer laziness and not being precise enough to know what's in a box, probably shifted it to where all records were supposed to go without going through the classification status. It's, it could have been as simple as that, but it brings into question when it's found out it happens and the news doesn't get out before election day. And there's no raid on the Biden side. There's no entertainment value. And, and that makes people step back and wonder. And as my wife said, the story just isn't believable about how it was found. Yeah. But Howard... I, your story is so much better than what I assumed the story was, which was that was also the closet in the garage where they kept the light bulbs. And Jill told Joe to go in there because one burned out. And he was like, oh, what's this box? And he looks at it, has like a Christmas vacation, like trip down memory lane until he realizes one of them's a top secret document and walks back in like, oh, no. Yeah, Mark, that's also you, possible. Tim, Mark, but, do you think if if the Biden administration, if Merrick Garland appointed a Trump nominated person to be the special prosecutor do you think there's any chance that the biden administration appoints former bush appointee under tarp howard schweitzer to redo <laughs> how we move like I a real I'll, nerdy debate executive de branch debate on how we no. move classified information I, i'm nominating a davis schweitzer ticket here we have <laughs> the legislative and the executive branches i think the Biden administration should hire the two of them, and the charge should be two words: fix this. You use white boxes with pink post-its on them. This. If it's leaving, you use brown boxes with blue post-its on it. If Patrick it's... Bush and Obama, and both Obama. sides, baby. Right, right. Both, both sides. sides. Yeah. Aren't it? Yeah. All right. Well, 
Rodney, uh, you didn't storm off the podcast, so uh, we made it through the first episode. Thank you for, but in all seriousness, uh, thanks for uh, joining us. Thanks for joining us today, and thanks for joining us. We are beyond thrilled to to have you on the team. We're going to learn uh, a ton from you. Our clients are going to benefit. And our colleagues are going to benefit enormously from your wisdom and counsel in terms of how Washington works. And based on this podcast, I think you'll learn from us that lawyers will do anything for a billable hour, Rodney. So, <laughs> yeah. and um, I want to thank Rodney for bringing the uh, capacity to fact check Towner. We've been so dependent on Towner for the last year. <laughs> so nice. I just Professor don't assume you're Frank. making like 75% of it up. So this is great. I want to say goodbye to the era of everybody trusted me. Well, <laughs> and I want to say go big blue because I'm the only one with a team playing this weekend. Mark, your team is sitting. We are sitting. Patrick, your team has the number one draft pick. We do. Congratulations. And do. Yeah, Rodney, I don't exciting. know who your team is. Who's your Raiders? Uh, Raiders. Oh, the yeah. Raiders. Right. I did know that. I'm sorry. The- Tana, your team is just pathetic. I'm sorry. We and may Caleb's still in search of a team. Kate- exactly. We may get a new owner, and maybe I can woo Caitlin to, to join uh whoever my team's name's gonna be. Caitlin, you gotta Caitlin's gotta pick one of the Florida teams. That's your state. Caitlin. The Bucks. Tampa there Bucks. you go. There the Howard, you have to wait. You know how I feel about Tom Brady. on the bottom. They're playing. Exactly. I got I got a little blue on the bottom and green on the top. So, uh, yeah. And Michael Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser were speculating that your former quarterback, Rodney, is being shipped to be Towner's current or new quarterback. So it's all all getting recycled. But anyway, I hope, I hope they complete a trade so that we're not, you know, having we don't have any standing costs and maybe. We can get Tom Brady for a year out of Tampa Bay. There you go. I can see a Super Bowl for the Raiders. Well, Rodney, I think Carson Wentz is available, isn't he, Tampa? We'll send Carson Wentz. Three number one draft picks. I know this is a Philadelphia-based firm, and I don't want to trigger anyone being, you know, the nut job Republican that I am. However, the last Super Bowl, one of the last, second to last Super Bowl Raiders won was against the Philadelphia Eagles. Yes, it was. Yes. You're in trouble now, Rodney. Well, I'm, I'm all for bashing Philadelphia on this podcast. <laughs> to be bipartisan, the other one that they won the most recent was against Towner's team. Yes. All right. I think the Brady to Vegas thing makes sense. He's single now. It's like the perfect place to just go for a year. <laughs> go to Las Vegas, play football. I'm, I'm in. I'm in. Uh, he needs to hang it up. All right, guys, this was awesome. We will be back next week. Thanks for joining us, everybody. And uh, welcome back to 2023. Thanks. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing Podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.